You're listening to In Network, Nordic's podcast series where we explore healthcare and technology with experts from around the globe. Hello, and welcome to the In Network podcast feature, Designing for Health. I'm Nordic's Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Craig Joseph. I recently sat down with Dr. Mark Townsend, Executive in Residence at Bon Secours Mercy Health. We talk about Dr. Townsend's path from internal medicine and cardiology to his current role as a health system administrator. We also discuss his work with emerging healthcare startups, balancing cybersecurity and customization within the electronic health record, and what it means to fail forward. Let's plug in. Mark, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Doing great. Thanks for having me. It is a pleasure to have you, uh, a well-known, well-established physician leader, to talk about some of the pitfalls and learnings uh, with respect to design that you've had. Yeah, mostly pitfalls. Mostly pitfalls. Well, that's how we learn, though, right? <laughs> that's that's how, right. That's how we learn. So, you know, how did you get into doing some of this work? I you're an internist by training and practice, I believe. Is that true? Yes, internal medicine, pediatrics trained, and then uh, went on to cardiology, so adult congenital and pediatric cardiology. So I'm recovering from all of that, actually. So <laughs> fair enough. So I didn't realize that you did med peds, and then you did cardiology fellowships in both in both peds and adult, or focusing yeah, more on one than the other. So, so dating myself, I'm grandfathered in through internal medicine for adult congenitals. So I did have to do, uh, there was training guidelines that, that helped me through that. So I did qualify for ABIM boards in adult congenital cardiology when they finally came along and it was a great experience. I got to help write the boards and then take them. So that was good. That is always, I think that's a tip that our listeners should really be focused on. Um, if you help write the boards, your chances of, of successfully completing the boards have gone up significantly. Absolutely. That's great. It's funny as a, uh, I was a primary care pediatrician. I don't practice now, but I, I did for a, a while. And now when I deal with uh, pediatric uh, subspecialists like gastroenterologists or endocrinologists, you know, they tell me, well, no, listen, uh, what I need in for my technology or other, uh, other things to help me practice, they're very different than what the adults need because I'm a pediatric endocrinologist or a pediatric gastroenterologist. And I always poo-poo them and say, well, <laughs> it's really the same, really, isn't it? You know, what a adult gastroenterologist does, but cardiology is actually very, very different. Uh, you take most adult cardiologists and ask them to look at a, at a small, uh, at a baby and they get very, very uh, diaphoretic and, and, and anxious appearing. So yeah. hats off to you to be able to do both of those things. Well, and as I said, I'm recovering from all of that. And uh, so I left clinical medicine behind to uh, to take a full administrative role three years ago. So here we have uh, here we have it. So how how did you get started? You you know you've done some fun things that we're going to talk about that are not traditional from either a leadership perspective or from you know a practice perspective. Um, one thing that I would just like to kind of understand is how did you get to where you are? Where did you become interested in doing some of these things, working with startups and and venture capital firms? Uh, how how did that all happen? Well, uh, I became interested in working in, in, in the technology space by virtue of the fact that I needed technology, right? So as a congenital cardiologist, uh, when no one knew what that was, I needed, for example, echo reading software. And when um, there was a couple of prototypes out there, I happened to know a couple of guys who were 
pretty good at hacking, if you will. And um, next thing you know, we, we found ourselves content and this can't go on the podcast, but necessity is the mother of invention, but building tools for, for the job that, that we needed uh, to, to perform clinically was how I had my start. So, you know, whether or not it was reading an echocardiogram, whether or not it was an electronic health record, I essentially had to build my own. So that's how I had my start. Well, that sounds all kosher. Nothing secret. <laughs> Mostly <laughs> kosher. Yeah, exactly. And the, <laughs> yeah. the guys I partnered with went on to be CMIOs. I'll leave them nameless uh, and blameless. All right. That's fair. Um, if you just tell me after the show, we'll make sure to put that secretly in the show notes. Yeah, there um, you go. And for a small fee, I'll... I'll make it more clear for people so that they can actually <laughs> find out who you're talking about. So the so necessity was the mother of invention, and you know that's kind of how you got forced into it. Obviously, though, once you were once you were there, you in some way you enjoyed yourself. You were working with, and I assume still are occasionally working with startups. Is that true? Yes, absolutely. So uh, you know the design journey that I was on was create a tool that I need to do my job that I can't afford and that doesn't exist, right? And then that leads to, well, you know, if I could do it for for that use case, could I not apply, you know, the same concept to an additional use case? And then the creative juices start to flow. Next thing you know, you know, you find yourself uh, in over your head. And uh, so I uh, I got involved in, in mobile health and, um, you know, conceptually helped design uh, a couple mobile apps that led to them uh, some additional content development and mobilizing million hearts that, that led to additional development. And then at some point you start to realize that it's a lot of work doing it on the front end. And it's more fun to criticize other people as they're doing the work. And so there's a local incubator called Lighthouse Labs. I'm based in Richmond, Virginia. So shout out to Lighthouse Labs. And so I, uh, I work with them to help distribute venture capital to help select the healthcare cohort that that is funded. That then turns into helping uh, startups access health systems. And uh, it gives me the advantage of, of being able to, to uh, constructively critique the work as it is being developed. So yeah, it needs space to be in. It's a creative outlet, right? Yeah. Well, that's, uh, you know, I, that's very helpful. And a big differentiator between you and me is uh, you're giving constructive criticism. I generally do de destructive <laughs> uh, criticism, as folks that work with me know. Um, well, let's talk about mobilizing million hearts. You had talked about that as a project that you worked on. Um, what 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 was that? How did that come about? And uh, how did it turn out? Yeah. So, as a practicing cardiologist, you know, trying to get your patients to buy in to improving their healthcare outcomes is the heavy lift, right? So, that's healthcare. And uh, so, if you say, "How might we statement? You know, how might we help my patient achieve better health outcomes?" That that conceptually leads to patient education, and um, so we as cardiologists, when we're predicting the risk of a ten-year cardiovascular event, a heart attack, or a stroke, and this is relevant for adult congenital, right? You're born with a heart problem, and now you're acquiring heart disease by virtue of the fact that you're an American. So, uh, and we've got the uh, you know the oh so healthy lifestyle. Trying to engage those patients in minimizing their risk was the heavy lift, and so I found myself. Um, trying to gamify their cardiovascular risk for them to say, for example, you've got a 50% chance of having a heart attack or a stroke within the next 10 years using, uh, you know, the, it's a cardiovascular risk prediction tool. And, and then you say, you pick one variable and say, but if you stop smoking, I guarantee you, your risk will decrease. 
right? And so then the, the patient's like, well, by how much? And so that led to the concept of, okay, well, let's gamify this thing, right? And so taking that show on the road ended up then allowing us to uh, engage the American College of Cardiology that went on to, to gamify the mobile health app, which became the teaching tool, by the way, of, of mobilizing million hearts, the, the, the nationwide initiative to curtail heart disease. That then led to the concept of, well, we could do that as a smart on fire app because it's pretty darn clunky in the middle of a patient care episode uh, to pull out your phone and to start plugging in data points and trying to convince the patient, hang on with me, you know, hang in there. Uh, we're we're going to have, you know, a really cool outcome here for you. And I won't be able to print this and you'll have no record of this. So taking that concept, we developed a smart on fire app and, and that turned into an ONC LEAP grant. Office of the National Coordinator uh, LEAP Grant, uh, 2018 to 2020, which, by the way, was designed to demonstrate that we could kind of kick open the door of development in the third-party open API space uh, to develop content for electronic health records without begging for permission. So that's what we did. So that so how did that work? So now you're with a patient, you've got the electronic health record open because it's omnipresent. And you tell them that, hey, you've got a 50% chance of having a stroke in the, in the next 10 years. But if you do some things, we can decrease that. And, and so right from, your, right from your screen, you're able to kind of say, well, if you, if you stop smoking, it's going to go down to this percent. And, but if you continue smoking, but if you lower your cholesterol, it's going to go down by this percent. But if you do both of those, is that the, is that the idea? Exactly right, and and uh, the the whole point uh, was to embed that content within the electronic health record, so it looks sure. and feel like the EHR, right? And uh, and and so you also don't have to go and pull in the data points, the age, and you know the medications, and whether or not they're on an antihypertensive, etc. So you can pull in discrete data points, which fuel the application, and then you make a fire call, and then next thing you know, you've got real live data to work with. And, uh, and then you can use sliders to, to gamify risk. So you engage your, your patient and say, well, so if you only took that blood pressure medication that I've been asking you to take for years, this is what it would do to your cardiovascular risk. And then next thing you know, you can visually display that in the electronic health record. You can print that and then send the patient home with it. And by visually display, are you saying, um, here's a hundred little icons of people and you know, you're going to go from this many people who are going to have a stroke to that many. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about? Yeah, I, I like that. And maybe that should be the next iteration of it. It's, uh, it's, it's more of a, uh, a red, yellow, green construct with sliders and more of a bar graph presentation. And, uh, and so, you know, you, your risk goes from red to green, uh, you know, if you make an intervention. So that's how we displayed it. Awesome. Well, that's uh, uh, that was some free suggestions that I just gave you. Um, <laughs> I, I've seen others do similar type risk, you know, explanations for for patients, and that was the way it was kind of expressed. And I, what I thought was quite effective, again, is like showing a, a hundred little people or ten little people, and you know, showing uh, three of them as being red, which is the, those are the ones that are going to be affected negatively, and. Having, I've seen a you know, kind of physician go, which one are you, you know, pointing right. at the, here's the, here's the, here's the good one. Here's the bad one. Which one yeah. do you want to be in? And boy, look, if you do that, take that blood pressure medicine, there's a lot more of the good guys and a fewer of the bad guys. And you know, that, 
seem to be much more effective than kind of just numbers, which are a little bit more kind of, you know, difficult to make into real life a percentage. Yeah. So when you were working with this, was this at MedStar? Was this at the, um, at that time with uh, the Center for Human Factors in Healthcare? Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's been said a prophet has no honor in their own country. I'm no prophet and I have no honor in my own country. So that made it uh, perfectly tenable that this wasn't going to work in my former healthcare institution. And uh, I needed a partner. So I went uh, to Ken Mendel, who's the, the, um, the father of Smart on Fire. And uh, I was in, in uh, grad school at the time. And uh, he gave me a lecture. So I, I chased him down after the lecture and, and said, hey, so this is what I want to do. And he's like, oh, that'd be a great grant. You ought to apply for a grant. So a classmate of mine um, named Terry Fairbanks started a Human Factors Institute at MedStar. I'm based in, in Virginia. I was, I was reconnected uh, with Terry's Institute and uh, the MedStar Center for Human Factors and Healthcare. Uh, helped us partner. So Kristen Miller was was really the one that did the heavy lifting with mobilizing million hearts. And uh, and so we were able to use the Human Factors Institute uh, to, to really help with the design of the application. So, you know, finding extreme users and putting them to work to to uh, punch holes in your concept is is uh, where we started. Were there other kind of learnings that you you might have stumbled into yourself, but that they were able to identify, you know, quickly and say, okay, this is completely wrong. Or have you even thought about this perspective? You had mentioned kind of extreme users, the, the folks that are going to be uh, um, on the periphery of the, of the use cases. Was there, were there other things? Yeah. You know, so uh, once you get into content development, um, we all fall in love with the solution and not the problem. Right. And so design thinking and challenges us to, fall in love with the problem, not the solution. So, you know, it's, it's one thing for me to, uh, to use my experience and say, okay, this is how it works in my clinic and this is how we should do it, right? Then you get that in front of expert users, you get that in front of novice users. And um, what we were able to do using human factors was uh, set users down in front of a screen, an electronic health record, and have them start engaging with our content. And one of the cool things that uh, MedStar does, they use a technology that essentially attracts the user's uh, visual um, cues with, with the user interface with the screen. So you can see where they're looking and then where they're engaging. And so you put content in an electronic health record where we think it's intuitive. <laughs> well, and guess what? It's not necessarily intuitive. And then you know through this process, you start to refine, okay, so if I'm in the middle of a patient interaction, and I need to access content. Where am I going to put it? And, and that's how we embedded it within electronic health record. That's how then we started to engage users and how did they interacted with that technology. And using those rapid cycles of continuous improvement, you know, those short, quick cycles. All right, let's tweak this. Try again, right? And keep the, uh, the, the user pool fresh. Um, that, that's, you know, how the design aspect really worked. And, and that's what, uh, you, know, you know, that's what MedStar does very well. Yeah, well, so it sounds like there's some there's some serious technology there with the eye tracking. And were, were you shocked at at the fact that there were people who did the same kinds of jobs as you? There are other cardiologists or internists and who who were not ready to um, interact with the technology that you created. I, I, I know I have been. I'm like, of course, this is the most obvious way of doing it. And uh, I've been wrong. I mean, it's only been yeah. once, Mark, but uh, it did happen to me. And 
Yeah, yeah. No, great minds think alike, right? So you you assume that everyone's going to be great like you and they're going to think just like you. But uh, who knew? Some people don't get the memo. Like I got the white shirt memo today and uh, you didn't even have to tell me because we're great minds. But, but uh, you know, other other people get the memo and uh, but they get it from someone else. Apparently, they don't get it from me. Wow. Yeah. Uh, well, I think we both agree that we are the some of the smartest people in the room. And oh, um, for sure, Every it's day. just everyone else that dis- <laughs> disagrees with that. Poor souls. Um, I know. I feel sorry for all those people. Um, let's talk about some of the work that's ongoing. Um, yeah. so, so you've, you've, you've worked with, uh, and you, you had just mentioned that, you know, you, you're, you're in the enviable, uh, position of, of giving constructive criticism to, uh, startups and, and folks that are looking to create either apps or other technology. Um, how does that, how, how do you interact with them? How do you make constructive uh, feedback and, and not the kind of destructive feedback that I give? What What are some examples of things that you've seen people do that made sense to them as they're developing their apps or creating their technology that that you're like, yeah, it's not going to work for most of us? Or yeah, it's it's interesting. So I think the first call out is that maybe five percent of the technology that I review at at some point has some significant compliant, uh, you know, compliance related concern, you know, is in other words, something that they're trying to do is a little bit illegal. And, um, you know, if you're a young developer and you're not in healthcare, you wouldn't know that, you know, for example, enhancing, uh, documentation, using automation to improve your reimbursement in a capitated environment. Why not? Right. I mean, if you can get a computer to be smarter than a human being. So I think first things first, you know, trying to keep people out of orange jumpsuits is, uh, is a start. Uh, but, but moving past that, you know, having been there, done that and falling in love with my creation as opposed to, uh, you know, really being in love with the, the problem, not the solution. I, I think, you know, as you extract yourself emotionally and you're interacting with startups, you commonly see that you see people just so infatuated and so down in the weeds, so far down the rabbit hole with their own technology that is not much oxygen down in the rabbit hole anymore. They're a little hypoxic and uh, they need to zoom out, get out of the rabbit hole, take a big breath of fresh air and say, hang on a second. So if you can gently mentor them, and example of that is a startup a couple of cohorts ago. So this couple cycles ago had developed this great uh, tool, but it was a freestanding user interface. It was, you know, it was mobile health. It was a, it was a mobile app. And you just have another sign into another portal and you're going to have another user interface and another screen out there, right? And why not? Because it's easier to design it that way. And then challenging these people, well, you know what? It's it's going to be really hard to get traction from someone who's actually living the life of a a physician or a clinician. It's going to be really hard to get traction uh, because they're not going to log into your, your interface. They're not going to have another floating window in the midst of busy patient interaction. So you've got to embed that in the electronic health record. And here's how you can do that, right? Introduction to HL7, smart on fire, you can do that. And so that's, that's where, uh, you know, I'm able to, to intervene and in some cases and, and help out. It's gratifying then to see them come full circle. And that happened recently where um, uh, a startup I'd worked with had, had actually listened to the advice, uh, which, was, which was kind of gratifying. Shocking, really. <laughs> And uh, they should have known better, but but no. In this in this case, they they came back, and they had actually done it. It was so gratifying because they now have a tool that is fully integrated into an electronic health record 
that actually is very cool, very useful. And um, we're trying to bring that full circle and get that plugged back into our health system. I'm, I'm genuinely shocked that that is the, the, you know, the most common example that, that you came up with because it's exactly my experience. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I, and, and we were talking about, again, your constructive ways and my destructive ways. Um, I have told many uh, developers um, that that's great what you just proposed. Are you curing cancer? Um, because if you are curing cancer, I am willing to go and log into that system and to have a floating screen and to do all those other things that are good for you, but bad for me. Uh, but if you're not curing cancer and almost no one is, um, then I'm not going to do it. And, and you, you hit that kind of 80% mark where, you know, this is where I live and it's 80% of the way there and it's good enough. And your new technology is offering me a boost up to 20%, you know, of 20% up to a hundred. It's amazing. But that 20% differential is not, not enough. And, yeah. and yeah. so hence to really get traction, it needs to be in the, you know, it needs to be connected or at least appear to be in the tool uh, where I'm spending all day. I'm not going to be flipping even to, even to ask someone to, to who's living in the electronic health record to email is a is can be a big deal um because yeah. that's not where they're they live do you, have you found any other kind of trends are there colors are there sizes of fonts are there um uh particular affordances in in software that you've seen where people are like no this is great and then you have to point out not everyone's 24 years old well the older i get the font size yeah is more helpful right so it's a <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to, to to read something that uh, is is in small print anymore. But but no, you know you know that aside. Another fun application is wearables. You know, there's a lot of interest in wearables, and and you you see in the design cohorts some pretty cool creative ideas come through. And then to be able to to redirect and shape that, uh, particularly how you take a wearable and then you ingest the data that you've curated from that, right? And that's where it can be a little bit disheartening back to, again, the electronic health record. It is, again, such a, a, a rate limiting step to be able to say, okay, well, I've created all this fantastic data. Now, you're a smart doc. You figure out what to do with it, right? And, um, and it, you can get halfway there, right? You've created this fantastic new technology that's going to be really helpful in a movement disorder, for example. And then, but we have no idea what to do with it. And, and uh, now with that data that we've created, can we turn it into cognitive assistance? Can we turn it into something mm -hmm. that makes the life of a clinician better rather than one more annoying pop-up that, that uh, you know, obstructs my workflow in the midst of a clinical scenario? Can we turn it into cognitive assistance that is somehow embedded into a, a workflow that I as a human being have to suffer through or, or, excuse me, I live through every day that I'm clinically active, right? You know, as the as you may know, I am the inventor of the pop up, and um, I am offended. I'm offended the by your pop up. Yes, by your bad attitude towards my my invention of the pop up, and I've I've encouraged software developers around the world to to pop things more more to pop up more things, Mark. So you need to tone down your your pop up uh, attitude and and get with the program. Equal uh, opportunity point, offense. <laughs> but seriously, your point is well taken. Um, boy, it's much better to prevent me if I'm entering a medication order um, or interacting somehow 
you know, with the technology, it's much better to guide me in the right direction than to yell at me after I make a mistake. Right. Amen. And, Amen. and those are some of the things that I think, you know, we, we who study design, at least even superficially kind of get and, and uh, humans appreciate, although they don't know why this is just, you know, this technology seems to be easier to use than that. And they, they couldn't tell you why. And it's because this one kind of guided you to, so it was unlikely you're going to make a mistake. And this one yeah. just let you make the mistake and then yelled at you after you made the mistake. And it would have been nice to, to have some advice, um, some gentle inline advice to kind of point me in a direction. Cognitive assistance. Absolutely. Yeah. So as a, you've kind of given up uh, most of your practicing uh, career and now you're, you're focused on, on leadership, um, I'm assuming that uh, governance of IT programs and, and other kind of technologies come across your, your way. How, how much fun is it telling people that they can have what they want or they can't have what they want or how they get what they want? Yeah, God help us all, right? That's, uh, that's synonymous with governance. Yeah, you know, there's this whole little thing about, you know, how we're going to pay for our good idea. And, um, you know, that factors into governance. And then the other little problem is, you know, how we create vulnerabilities with our technology. And so, you know, there's, there's a sinister world out there and there are people that want to do us harm, even in healthcare, right? That's the thing that, that kind of stifles innovation. Having been there on the front end of that, where you come up with a technology and you say, you know, all I got to do is just plug this in and uh, we're going to be great. We're going to save lives, stamp out disease. It's going to be amazing. And then uh, someone tells you, well, you've just created significant vulnerabilities in our system. Uh, no, 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 no. Well, well, even if I did, you know, no one's going to take advantage of those vulnerabilities. Well, apparently some people out there are. So, you know, in this governance construct, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it, you do have to sometimes be the naysayer. I still find myself on the other side of the argument uh, more often than not. And more recently, trying to integrate a technology into our health system. That's uh, an AI-driven algorithm, just like every other algorithm these days, right? And uh, that does super cool things in terms of mining data and then turning that into actionable uh, you know, clinical interventions. That was supposed to be like a two-month project. It turned into a nine-month compliance-centric project just to get it through governance, right? So I was very patient. The older I've gotten, I've gotten a little bit more patient. So working on that, I'm impatient with my progress and trying to become more patient. But with that whole project, I, I then was able to use that as an example of how we need to blow up our whole governance construct and redesign it. So in an environment where the time to market is how you protect intellectual property, that you, know, you, can't, you can't delay, you can't wait nine months uh, to, to get something approved. So that's the, the constant paradigm and, uh, that, that we're all living in. It's, um, you know, it's, it's a bit of a innovation paradox, you know, time is money and, and how do we capitalize on technology if, if we're stuck in that time warp, which is compliance and governance. So where do we put that line, that safety line, you know, in terms of a uh, cybersecurity, I, I used to joke with, um, some, some of the chief information security officers and, and, um, uh, lawyer type people uh, when I was on the provider side to say, hey, you know, I hear what you're saying about security. Um, what we're going to do is we're just going to have one terminal and we're going to put it in the middle of the hospital uh, on the fifth floor of 10 floors. And um, uh, we'll have two guards outside it and then we'll be 100% secure, but we won't be able to treat patients. And and so there's there's got to be some kind of give and take. Have you 
Have you, what is the secret? If you could just tell us what the secret is, Mark, that would be <laughs> awesome. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I got all the secrets. You know, secrets aside, one, one thing that I am advocating for currently is the creation of an innovation sandbox. And uh, give me an epic environment where I can sit down. It's a non-prod environment where I can sit down and with a, with a team of developers and we can just have fun, right? Epic does that, by the way. So I hear. But, but um, <laughs> taking that one step further and then saying, all right, so if we do develop a technology using a sandbox internally or using Epic's tool, sure. Let's, let's then uh, create the vehicle for us to actually get into the production environment in a secure construct. And let's have all of our compliance team in the room with us when we do it. But then let's actually create this innovation space, this incubator, or this little igloo, you know, borrowing from Google terminology. How can we do that internally as, as a system? So that's turned into a conversation of, okay, well, we're going to have to pick a specific location uh, and so, you know, I'm based in the Richmond market. So of course it's going to be Richmond, right? If we get this right. And then, uh, if, if we can do that, can we pick a specific hospital and a specific physical space that is clinically active and, and turn it into our innovation hub? So that's where we're going with it is let's create a sandbox. Let's, let's create an environment where we can actually get our hands dirty, roll up our sleeves. And, and not hurt anybody and not hurt anything in the process and not jeopardize, you know, the security of, of our entire health system um, by virtue of the fact that we want to be innovative. So that's, that's where we're going with it. I don't know if that's the right answer. Ask me in a few uh, months. And uh, if the uh, compliance fee- people get a hold of this concept, ask me in a couple of years. Yeah. And I'll, I'll also, if I see any pictures of you wearing orange, I will, <laughs> I, I will rescue me. I'll have the, well, I'm not going to rescue you. No, but I'll have yeah, no, the, send in your people. Yeah, no, you're stuck there at that point. But, um, <laughs> I just want to know that's where you stand with me. I will not be breaking you out of jail. Um, hopefully though, you're not going to, you're not going to, you're not going to be in there. Um, well, let's pivot a little bit, uh, from that kind of trying to be innovative uh, as you may know, I, I worked uh, for a two, three, actually almost four years uh, in Silicon Valley area for a, a hospital yeah. system out there. And uh, I certainly encountered a lot of startups that uh, were saying some of the things that you just mentioned, which is, well, come on, it's unlikely that there'll be a problem or come on, it's pretty close. And one of the things I, I heard from the Valley, as the cool people call it, uh, is that that concept of well, if we're let's just try this, and um, if we're going to fail, we'll try and fail fast and fail cheaply. Now, is this something? I, I understand, like you, you've taken this concept of, uh, of of kind of failing fast and and talk about failing forward. Yeah, and and I'm not I'm not sure exactly what that means. How do you fail forward? Sure. Yeah, one of my favorite expressions: fail fast, fail forward, fail frequently. But uh, too many Fs there. But, but uh, you know, the, the notion is let's not be afraid to fail. And, um, and so many times, you know, whether or not we're in management, whether or not there's capital at risk, whether or not sometimes there's maybe careers at risk, if we're afraid of failure, we, we get paralyzed, right? And uh, you can apply that to so many different environments, in which case not being afraid to fail uh, means that listen, we're, we're going to screw things up. That's why we have a team. Let's be accountable to each other. And let's have the environment uh, fully established, whereby when Townsend is screwing things up, 
my people tell me that I'm screwing things up, in which case I'll nod, smile, thank them tomorrow, maybe not today, but I'll, I'll thank them. And then uh, there'll be a group hug and then we'll move on and then we'll pivot. But, but the pivot is the real time, uh, you know, feature that makes it, that, that makes this thing work. So, so that's my interpretation of fail fast, fail forward. When we create that environment, it becomes in a safe space to try new things, right? And uh, you don't, you, you, nothing stifles innovation as quickly as saying, oh, well, that's not the best practice. Uh, you know, who defines the best practice? I, I want to find whoever the best practice person is, and uh, I want to see them in orange. I don't, I don't, I don't want to be the guy in orange. I want to see the best practice people in orange. But then nothing kills innovation as quickly as saying, you know what? Someone already figured that out. They're much smarter than you are, and so you really ought to go home and just think about that. So let's let's try it, even if it means to it means we fail. And you know, the most costly failure of my career to date was maybe an issue of maybe about $1.3 million. I didn't get fired for it. We failed miserably. I learned a lot. I was accountable for my failure. And guess what? The, the value that we created through that failure turned into a much more enhanced value proposition by virtue of the fact that we had learned from our mistakes. And we went on to do very, very well. That $1.3 million was a small investment compared to the, the eventual return. So the, the failing forward is, is uh, taking, you know, one step back and then trying to go two steps forward with the, yes. with that concept. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and how do you explain to healthcare executives, because I, I struggle with this regularly, um, who are saying, who say, well, we're, we're in healthcare. And so failure is not an option. Um, we, we can't have any, any problems. It has to all work perfectly and it has to work perfectly the first time. Um, do you give, how how do you deal with that kind of mindset? Which again, I totally respect, I get it, but it doesn't, it's not accurate. Of course, no one's, one would assume that we're not, uh, trying to, um, kill patients here that uh, a failure simply means that we're going to be spending money unnecessarily or, um, things that we thought were going to make uh, uh, some minor improvement actually didn't make an improvement at all. Um, that's that's what we're talking about generally with failure. How do how do you kind of get that message across to to executives? Yeah, so a great place to start, as you just pointed out, is there's no death and dying involved in the failure that we're talking about. So this is not getting into patient safety and and trying things out at the expense of potential harm. Obviously, right? But but in that, the freeing thing as you get into healthcare administration as a physician leader is, yes, I've been to many codes and I've been the physician responsible for patient outcomes for my entire career. Using that mindset creates a willingness to tolerate risk in a business environment, however, that gives us a little bit of an advantage because I know that if I go and try something with a revenue cycle uh, innovation, Nobody's going to die, right? And and there's not going to be a code. And uh, at the end of the day, yeah, we might be a little bit further behind in our budget, and we might miss budget for the month. But again, fail fast and fail forward. We'll figure it out next month, and we're going to do better next month because we've just learned from what we did. And so, applying that concept um, really does uh, really does uh, differentiate. I think clinical leaders, in many cases, in healthcare administration. Um, many people have never been on the front lines of assuming risk uh, in a patient care environment. And, and that's, that's um, you know, the weight that we bear is 
as clinicians, um, I will tell you, leaving that behind, as I, as I say, I retired from clinical medicine to uh, to turn into a healthcare administrator. Um, you know, there's there's uh, nobody going to get hurt if my project doesn't end on time, and uh, there's no there's going to be no patient safety episodes. You know, by virtue of the fact that a budget cycle uh, is a little bit altered by virtue of you know a project that I've got underway. I think that's really insightful what you what you said about kind of clinicians, um, people who treat patients uh, are used to taking risks, not like, let's see what happens. But, hey, I only see there's only three options and all of them are bad. Yep. And, and yeah. we, we, we have to deal with that. Or um, I, I, I can't wait until I get all of the information to make the best decision. I have to make a decision now. Uh, in an emergency situation. And yeah. I'm going to make the best decision I can with the information that's available now because I can't wait. And and for a lot of folks who don't deal with that on a regular basis, that, that's crazy. It, it is crazy. It's why, you know, you don't want to make a decision to have all the information, but oftentimes uh, in healthcare, you there's no option. You have to do that. So Yeah, yeah. As long as you're measuring your outcomes as well, right? And And so... One of the epiphanies in my career was the introduction to the notion of a control chart or a Schuhart chart, where a Schuhart chart where time is on the horizontal axis and you've got an upper control limit, a lower control limit, and you intervene. You make an intervention and then you measure your outcome. Hmm. So let's try something and then let's see what happens. And then if it was a good intervention, then guess what? You get to compress your control limits and uh, you get to reset your your ground zero or your your starting point in your control chart and then you measure going forward again so that really factors into that fail fast and fail forward concept where uh if time is on your side let's let's try it rapid cycles of continuous improvement right that that's what makes the world better that that is what makes the world I was going to say, I was going to start singing a song about making the world go round, but that is <laughs> rapid cycles of continuous improvement, small little iterations. And sometimes you're right, uh, sometimes you're wrong, but as long as you're moving forward, you're, you're making progress. Yeah. Well, well, Dr. Townsend, it's been uh, a great conversation. Um, we're getting near the end of our time. I wanted to ask you a question that we ask all the folks on our, on our podcast, which is, are there things in your life that are, are so well designed that, that they bring you happiness and joy. And oftentimes these are not in the healthcare sphere. So is there something in your life that is, is so well designed that you, you think you're thankful for it on a regular basis? Absolutely. Absolutely. So joy in my world, I'm six foot seven. Joy is defined as the absence of pain, right? So a a joyful experience for me walking through a door is that I fit and I don't hit my head and there's no pain. So, so apply that to now fitting in the driver's seat of a vehicle. I haven't fit in a vehicle since I was 14 years of age. And then Ford had this design challenge and I'm, I was not a Ford fan, let me just say, because my first car was a Ford Escort and I had to fold origami to get into it with the seat reclined and my head hitting the ceiling and me driving from the back seat. I would cruise through town and it would look super cool in my Ford Escort. But but then you you fast forward a few years, Ford apparently got the memo that people my size don't fit in a Ford. And they had a design challenge, which uh, led to the Ford Maverick, which was to say, let's identify extreme users. Apparently, I'm an extreme user. 
and uh, and they came up with uh, a a driver seat that I actually fit in. They installed that in Ford Broncos. And for the first time since the age of 14, I actually fit in a vehicle and I'm not in pain. So that brings me joy. How, what, how does this work? I'm fascinated by this. What, what design, what did they do to make it easy for you to fit in there? Now, again, <laughs> I am almost as tall as you. Um, it's just about one and a, one and a half feet or so uh, difference. So it's, I feel your pain. <laughs> I look up to you. I look up to you. Yeah. yeah. When you're sitting down, maybe. Um, what, what, what's the magic there? Or, or can you put your finger on it? Is it a bunch of things or one, one major thing? Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. So uh, if, if I sit in a Ford F-150, I don't fit. But if I sit in a Ford Bronco, they had this innovative concept, which was, what if we allow the front seat um, allow the user to push the front seat all the way into the back seat, right? So, so you move your seat back, and guess what? There's no one, uh, no one can sit behind you anymore because you're all the way in the back seat. Instead of having to recline your seat like I did in the Ford Escort, you can now move your seat back and accommodate your leg length, even if you're six foot seven. That's a novel concept, right? So uh, th- take that, and then. Uh, and, and then the, the, the other novel concept was we don't need to have a super fancy driver's seat. In fact, it, it actually looks pretty basic, but it doesn't create this forward-leaning posture where you're hugging your steering wheel and therefore you don't hurt. And uh, so hats off to these people at Ford. I'd love to meet the people who designed this thing. But uh, thanks to them, I can get out of a car and I'm not in pain. That brings me joy. It's a joyful day every day I get in the car. All right. I am now dedicated to finding that person at Ford <laughs> and, and, uh, and connecting you to and putting it on video and um, going viral. And as the kids tell go. me, if we do that, we're all going to be gazillionaires. So that's it. That's it. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I want a maverick out of it. If I get a maverick no, out of it, I'll no, be you, happy. You, no, you're going to take fame, and you'll be happy with the fame. <laughs> and I'll get the I'll get the uh, the maverick and oh, uh, dude, or, dude. or or the cash equivalent because it's my brilliant idea. <laughs> Thank you again. This was great, and uh, I'm glad that you fit in a car and that you, Thanks, you fit in a car without pain. And I, I hope other um, other aspects of your life. I, I'm not. I'm afraid to even ask you uh, about airplanes. Um, yeah, no, let's not have that conversation. Yeah, we're not going to go there now. All right. Well, be well. Thank you again for for uh, kind of educating us and and um, look forward to that uh, that Ford reunion that I'm going to be planning in the next year or two. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. For more information about Dr. Townsend, visit bsmhealth.org. Check back for more episodes of Designing for Health wherever you listen to podcasts or on nordicglobal.com. Till next time, we'll see you in network. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. This helps others find the podcast as well.